Afghanistan in the early 1990s was arguably worse off than under Soviet occupation. The Mujahideen, with financial help and weapons from the United States, and driven by religious fervor exported from Arab nations, were able to overthrow the Soviet-backed government. Communism was defeated, but the resulting power vacuum brought civil war to a war-weary population. The Mujahideen warlords who defeated the Soviets turned their weapons on one another over who would rule Afghanistan. On one hand, you had Ahmad Shah Massoud, a Tajik of the Northern Alliance, and on the other hand, you had the Pashtun warlords like Gulbuddin Hekmetyar, the leader of his own sect of the Hezbi Islami Party. There were others, Abdul Saif, who is still politically active, but I could go over names all day, but it would only get confusing. The point is, the period following the Soviet withdrawal was violent. Thousands died in Kabul alone. All throughout the country, the average Afghan got caught in the crossfire between private militias. And the militias, these private armies funded from war spoils and drug running, were brutal toward the Afghan people. The average Afghan wanted stability following the collapse of the Soviet-backed government and instead received chaos. So, in the early 1990s, a movement emerged to bring order to Afghanistan, and it would start in the southern province of Kandahar. A lot of this is legend, but the story goes something like this. Shrapnel took one of his eyes in a battle with the Soviets in 87 or 89. He was reported to be an expert marksman and to have destroyed Soviet tanks. But when the Soviets pulled out in 89, Mullah Omar went to Pakistan. Omar spoke Arabic, rare for an Afghan, and was deeply religious. He took to leading prayers at a mosque in Pakistan. But sometime before 1994, Omar returned to Jare district in Kandahar province in the midst of the civil war. Then he had a vision. A woman appeared to him in a dream and told him to rise up in the chaos. She said Allah would help him. And in 1994, the same year Omar had his vision, a local governor in Jare district used his private militia to abduct two teenage girls. Their heads were shaved and they were raped at the governor's compound. So Omar got together 30 of his students. Talibs, and even though they only had 16 rifles, they freed the girls and hanged the local warlord governor from the barrel of an old Soviet tank. In another story, two militia commanders wanted to sodomize the same young boy, so they warred against each other for the kid, and when Omar heard of this, he and his students fought the warlords and freed the boy. Omar became a kind of hero, and people asked for his assistance and his religious movement grew. He took over Kandahar province, and in 1996, Omar entered the Shrine of the Cloak in Kandahar City and put on a cloak that belonged to the Prophet Muhammad. He had taken the cloak and fulfilled the prophecy that whoever could retrieve that cloak from the shrine would be a leader among Muslims. Then, he led his Talibs to take Kabul, and then the Taliban had control of the country. But in the legend surrounding the rise of the Taliban, the story of General Razak Achekzai also begins. (laughs) 
General Razik Acheksai is the provincial chief of police for Kandahar province, and his rise is tied to the U.S. invasion. In previous episodes, we discussed John Muhammad Khan and his nephew Madiola Khan, and how Western money contributed to their dominance in Aruzgan province. And although Madiola Khan was a rich man, his money was nothing compared to what General Razik was able to make. And as popular as Madiola Khan might have been with his Popolzai tribe, General Razik has an entire cult of personality built around him. And unlike Madiola Khan, General Razik is alive and well and more powerful than ever before. And his story starts alongside the rise of the Taliban and the Taliban's leader Mullah Omar. And like most stories of power in Afghanistan, his is one driven by revenge. For years, the Achekzai tribe and the Norzai tribe smuggled weapons, people, drugs, and anything under the sun from Pakistan into Afghanistan and vice versa. And like most tribes in Afghanistan, the two groups didn't get along. I've mentioned in earlier episodes how the Pashtun tribes are largely divided into Durrani and Gilzai confederations. Well, the Durrani tribes are further subdivided into two large groups. There are the Jirak tribes and you've heard of some of these tribes before in previous episodes. Among the Jirak are the Popolsais, Madiella Khan, Hamid Karzai, and John Muhammad Khan, who, who I've talked about before, belong to this tribe. Then you have the Baraksais, another politically powerful tribe, and the Acheksais. Abdul Razik Acheksai is, of course, an Acheksai. And for years, these Jirak sub-tribes wielded most of the political power in Afghanistan and looked down on the other subset of Pashtuns, the Panjpai Pashtuns. The Norzai tribe, that other smuggling tribe, belongs to the Panjpai Pashtun tribes. So, again, <clears throat> that's a lot of foreign words. Know this. You have the Achiksai tribe and the Norzai tribe. They both inhabit the border region in southern Afghanistan between Afghanistan and Pakistan. The tribes are known for their ability to smuggle things across the border, and the Achiksai looked down on the Norzai for not being part of the politically powerful side of the Durrani confederation of Pashtun tribes. It's a kind of holier-than-thou attitude among drug smugglers, if you will. Of course, more simply, they were both competing in the same market. Before the Soviet invasion, the two tribes maintained a kind of peace along the border, and generally kept to themselves. But one Mujahid, Esmat Muslim, and Acheksai, allied himself to the communist government in exchange for control over the border in Spin Buldak, Kandahar province. This put the Acheksai in control of the border and most of the smuggling routes. This also angered the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviets and the Norzai tribe. So the Mujahideen turned on Esmat and forced him to flee to Moscow. However, one of Esmat's closest allies, an Achiksai named Mansur, rejoined the Mujahideen and, in the civil war that followed, Mansur became a warlord in his own right. Mansur, that Kandahari Mujahid warlord, was General Razik's uncle. But the civil war, as I mentioned earlier, gave rise to the Taliban, and the Afghan people welcomed them with open arms. Anything, really to put a stop to the endless war and death ravaging the country. But in eastern Kandahar, the Norzai tribe, 
bound by honor to seek revenge against the Achiksai tribe, joined with the Taliban against the Mujahideen-aligned Achiksais. The warlords in Kandahar were killed or removed from power by the Talibs. Razik's father and uncle were among the dead, and a young Abdul Razik Achiksai fled to Pakistan, where he would wait until 2001. And after September 11th, the United States issued an ultimatum to Mullah Omar's Taliban that boiled down to basically, give us Osama bin Laden or pay dearly. And Mullah Omar, honor bound by Pashtun Wali, his honor code of the Pashtun people, to do his guest bin Laden no harm, refused to give him up. And then the longest war in American history kicked off. But the U.S. knew it needed local support to overthrow the Taliban, and there was a huge group of Afghans looking for revenge just across the border. One man, a former Mujahid and former Kandahar governor during the Civil War, Golaga Shurzai, was more than willing to take U.S. cash and assemble a small army in Quetta, Pakistan, to take back Kandahar, his southern home. And a 20-year-old Abdul Razak Achekzai, would enlist in Galaga Shurzai's army to fight for him. And when it was all said and done, at the end of 2001, Galaga Shurzai's militia, along with Hamid Karzai and U.S. special forces in the south, took back Kandahar from the Taliban. The Taliban surrendered to Karzai, although Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld would not accept a surrender whereby Mullah Omar would go free. But it was done, and the interim government was set up. In return for his service, Karzai made Golaga Shurzai the governor of Kandahar once again, and Golaga Shurzai appointed a young Abdul Razak to be in charge of the border crossing in Spin Boldock. And Abdul Razak had revenge on his mind. The Nurzai tribe, his natural enemy, were Taliban sympathizers, and they had to pay. And not just the Nurzais, the entire Taliban. You see, when the Taliban rose to power and hanged that warlord from the barrel of a Soviet tank, they hanged Esmat Muslim, and his nephew, Abdul Razak, was back in town and had just acquired a whole lot of power. And now for a segment where I talk about some Afghan news stories and give my very unprofessional but somewhat educated opinion and analysis on them. If you listen to this podcast, you probably keep up with the news and no doubt saw the reports of the GBU-43, the guided bomb unit known as the Massive Ordnance Air Blast, or Mother of All Bombs, or the MOAB, dropped in Aachen in eastern Afghanistan. Well, that's a lot of names for ordnance. Reports say around 94 Islamic State fighters were killed in a cave complex in Nangarhar province, and that no civilians were killed, which, which may be true. No one is mourning the loss of Islamic State fighters, but I think there will be consequences for dropping the largest non-nuclear bomb in our arsenal 16 years into a war. Forces have drawn down over the past few years, but uh, Donald Trump, despite campaign promises to the contrary, seems to be about escalating the war. I think now is a good time to mention, if you haven't figured it out already from previous episodes, I am pretty against the war in Afghanistan, particularly in its current form. For years, there hasn't been any real direction or end goal, and if you ask the people working in the country, they may give you many different objectives. 
And then you have the generals in charge of the mess, who change their story every month or so. One month, the Taliban are facing defeat. In another month, it's a stalemate, and then Donald Trump gets elected, and General Nicholson calls for a few thousand more troops to help in the country. And I'm getting off track, but after the bomb was dropped, the National Unity Government, the current government in Afghanistan, praised the strike in the news. But former President Hamid Karzai took to social media, Al Jazeera, and even Russian newspaper Izvestia to rail against the bomb. Karzai said the bomb infringed on the sovereignty of Afghanistan. He said it was an environmental catastrophe and that the U.S. was using his country to test weapons. The U.S. and the National Unity Government denied that the bomb had any environmental effects, but Karzai, since the end of his term in 2014, has been an outspoken critic of the United States in Afghanistan. So his comments don't really come as any surprise to the people that follow him. But is he wrong? I don't, I don't think so. With every raid by U.S. forces and every bomb dropped by a U.S. plane, we take responsibility from Afghanistan, or for Afghanistan, away from its citizens. And in that way, the United States controls the destiny of a country rather than its people having control. And I've talked about it in other episodes, but the security apparatus in Afghanistan is not capable of holding ground, so a U.S. bomb can kill 100, 200 ISIL fighters, but if no one is there to secure and hold the area, they're just going to come back. It's kind of like not finishing your antibiotic regimen. These groups just become resistant. And if this ship, uh, the war in Afghanistan, think of it as a ship, if it has no destination or a million different captains with a million different destinations, the Afghan people should not really want the U.S. involved. But if I agree with Hamid Karzai on one point, I'll have to disagree with him on another. At a meeting in Moscow, he told the Russian government he wants their assistance in fighting terrorism. And according to Karzai, the Islamic State is a tool of the United States and only exists in Afghanistan because the United States allows them to do so. At the same time, it is in Russia's best interest to kill Islamic State fighters in Afghanistan before the movement spreads north toward their borders. But Russia wouldn't help Afghanistan for the sake of helping Afghanistan. They probably don't care at all about Karzai or the Afghan people, and if Karzai accuses the United States, and maybe he's right in doing so, of continuing in Afghanistan only for the sake of U.S. geopolitical and financial interests, surely he can see that Russia only wants the same thing. I am sure this is a political move by Karzai, because I do not believe he is ignorant of his country's difficult history with the Soviet Union. And in darker news, if that's somehow possible, in the northern city of Mazari Sharif, the Taliban attacked an Afghan army base and killed anywhere between 140 and 200 Afghan soldiers. The attack is an absolute tragedy, and you have to ask how it was allowed to happen. The Taliban wore Afghan uniforms and drove Afghan vehicles right into the base, according to news reports. Some reported suicide bombers were used to breach defenses, but survivors said the attackers had to have had insider help in order to drive those vehicles past security and onto the base, home to the 209th Army Corps. Then they attacked soldiers, leaving Friday prayer services. One survivor told the BBC that he walked out of prayer services and came under machine gun fire 
from an Afghan army vehicle. And on the 24th, Afghan Defense Minister Habibi and Army Chief of Staff Qadam Shah both resigned. President Ghani then removed four Army Corps commanders from their positions. And that's a huge shakeup in the Army and comes after the Taliban have made gains this year to include taking the valuable Sangin district of Helmand Province. U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis visited Afghanistan and stood next to Resolute Support Commander General Nicholson and said that ISIL will be defeated in Afghanistan and that the Taliban were a barbaric enemy. Well, if ISIL is to be defeated in Afghanistan, it would be nice to have a statement as to what defeat or for ISIL and what victory for Afghanistan and its allies looks like. Is victory decimating ISIL? Is it the elimination of anyone who pledged allegiance to Daesh? Is it a complete eradication of the ideology? Well, it's unlikely we will ever get an answer. What does victory look like? That's a good question, and ask yourself that question from time to time. Think back over the past 15 years, and try to remember if there was ever a victory condition. Like with all U.S. military actions since 9-11, there aren't answers. And I imagine we will see another surge in U.S. forces in Afghanistan, and the war will continue for another four years at least. Because if there is no way to win, you never have to stop playing. And thank you so much for listening to episode 5 of Green and White. If you learned something and enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you all.